Open your Bibles with me to Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28. I want to share with you one of the most entertaining chapters in the Bible out of 1189 chapters, and it's Job 28. I have shared this with you in detail in the year 2008 and in the year 2014, one in a detailed outline, the other by slides. The word wisdom and the word understanding in the Bible are other words for our worldview. Or, our choice of the word worldview means the wisdom and understanding taught in the Bible. Because if we have the wisdom and understanding of the Bible, we will view the world the right way. So it is our worldview. Job was in difficult straits in chapter 28. He had three friends, and they were three of the wisest friends on earth, three of the wisest men on earth, but they misapplied God's judgments in his life for being caused by Job's sins, and that was not the case at all. They had a warped worldview, and so Job's going to play with them for Job 28 and correct them for lacking in a proper worldview, though he's going to use the words wisdom and understanding. I want to use this to ask you a couple of questions about what we're studying. How important do you think a proper worldview is? This chapter will help explain how important it should be. What kind of a gift it is from God for us to have the right worldview. It is a tremendous gift. Job 28 is very entertaining. Job is playing hide-and-seek with his three friends. He's reached the point now where he wants to abuse them for the way they've mistreated him. But Elihu will get the greatest pleasure of abusing them when he gets so angry in chapter 32 that he has to speak. But here we go. Job chapter 28. I want you to be thinking about what a big thing it is for you to have the right worldview. What a huge gift it is from God. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they find it. This chapter is about underground mining. Underground mining is about the largest, most complex, capital-intensive, dangerous, costly undertaking that men ever engage in. In South Africa, there are two mines, 2.4 and 2.5 miles straight down. The rock down there is 200 degrees, so they have to pump ice down those shafts in order to cool it enough to work with it. One of those mines has 276 miles of tunnels under the ground, reaching down to two and a half miles. Now, they didn't have them quite that deep in Job's time, but they had underground mines because that's where gold comes from. And that's where silver comes from. And that's where other precious stones come from. Job knew about it. And Job is going to talk about mining in great detail. And on a Wednesday night, five years ago, I showed you all that detail, verse by verse, with pictures of some of the mines and what they went through to fulfill each one of these verses. These verses are about the largest undertaking that men have. One of the greatest accomplishments, especially in that time, without some of the benefits that we have. 
and it shows the costliness of getting gold and silver out of the ground. That's why gold has the value that it does because of the cost of production of gold right. to get it up out of the ground. It's a rare metal. Here we go. And so the, Job is going to lead us along and he's going to pop us some hints about the blessing of the right worldview. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they find it. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. He setteth an end to darkness, that's man, and searcheth out all perfection. You know, they have lights down there. I can't stop. I cannot explain this now. I have done it twice. You can go back and find either one. It is very entertaining. And it should provoke you by the time I get to the end. He is describing mining, underground mining, for precious metals in detail. Every clause. The flood breaketh out from the inhabitant, even the waters forgotten of the foot. They're underground waters. They are dried up. They are gone away from men. As for the earth, out of it cometh bread at the surface, and under it is turned up as it were fire, the heat that is down just a little ways. The stones of it are the place of sapphires, and it hath dust of gold. There is a path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. The lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed by it. He putteth forth his hand upon the rock, this is man. He overturneth the mountains by the roots. He cutteth out rivers among the rocks, and his eye seeth every precious thing. He bindeth the floods from overflowing, and the thing that is hid bringeth he forth to light. But where shall the right worldview be found? And where is the place of the right worldview? Where is wisdom found? Where is understanding found? Man takes risks, puts his life at risk, all of his capital at risk, to go and find something that is very obscure and difficult to find in underground mining. Verse 13, man knoweth not the price thereof. He doesn't know the price of those two things in verse 12, which is our right worldview. Neither is it found in the land of the living. All ordinary measures of finding wisdom never work. The land of the living. They're able to find gold, silver, platinum, palladium, and other metals, and it's precious stones underground, but they can't find wisdom or understanding. Right. Man knoweth not the price thereof. Neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth saith, it is not in me, so it's not at the bottom of the ocean. And the sea saith, it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold. There is no price for it. Neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof, of wisdom and understanding, or our worldview. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx, or the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of pearls, for the price of wisdom, the price of our worldview, is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia shall not equal it, neither shall it be valued with pure gold. Here comes another hint. Whence then cometh wisdom? Where is the right worldview then? And where is the place of understanding or our worldview? 
seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air. Destruction and death say, We have heard the fame thereof with our ears. God understandeth the way thereof, and he knoweth the place thereof. God knows it. For he looketh to the ends of the earth and seeth under the whole heaven to make the weight for the winds, and he weigheth the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then did he see it and declare it. He prepared it, yea, and searched it out and said unto man, and unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Amen. 28 verses, he led those three men along by talking about underground mining. The eye of a vulture, incredible vision, so superior to ours, cannot see it. No lion has ever trodden the path of wisdom. It's hidden, it's hidden, it's hidden, it's hidden. The right worldview is hidden. The right worldview is God's. God knows where it is. God controls it. God dispenses it. God gives it away. God reveals it to others. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. The amount of money, the lives that have been risked, the efforts made to get gold and silver out of the ground, they cannot find it. But the right worldview is ours because it's been given to us by God. The proverb for this week, end, is Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Write what Job is teaching here. Job, David, Solomon all taught the same thing. The right worldview starts with the fear of the Lord. Unto man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Whether it's Proverbs 1-7, or Proverbs 8-13, or Proverbs 9-10, or Psalm 112 and verse 1, they all say the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. So what is axiom number one? God is. God is. In the beginning, God. That gets us started. The undertaking to get your ring out of the earth was incredible. What effort are you willing to put into the right worldview? I've put a little bit of effort into it. I just want you to be excited about it. Here's Job, by inspiration, comparing it to underground mining. And we have found the mother load. Okay? We have found the mother load because the Lord's revealed it to us. And we bless and praise His holy name. Now, brethren, these axioms that I have for you are very abbreviated, very superficial, very light, very simple, very short, very few points. I have intentionally designed it that way. I do not want to write a systematic theology of uh, divine and practical godliness. I just want to write a summary framework for us to be reminded of how we think. Everything you read in the news, everything you hear about at work, everything that happens in your family can immediately be addressed by the right worldview. If you put these things into practice, you don't even have to think about them. It's just intuitive. It's instinctive because God's changed our instincts and our intuition to be based on His Word. And that's the purpose. That's why I'm, I'm going very quickly. So if you think on any point, I wish you would have explained that more. It has been explained in great detail at other times. 
but not this time. I just want to give, give us a summary framework of these axioms. We've been through number 34. Number 34 was last Sunday. Today is number 35. And let's get going and see if we can cover the 10 or 11 that I would like to cover today before we have the Lord's Supper. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 for one passage of Scripture about number 35. Axiom number 35. We have found the mother load. We have dug deep in the Word of God, and the Lord has mercifully shown it to us, and so we have a worldview. We have reasons for why we think and view things in the world the way we do. And this is one of them. Number 35, God allows much liberty. God allows much liberty. Axiom number 35. This is one of our axioms. This is how we view the world. This is how we view others. This is how we view each other in this church. God allows much liberty. Our axioms seem strict, and they should be. But God gives great latitude in personal liberty, personal freedom. And here it is, Romans chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord. This is the mother load. This is, this is the vein of silver and the vein of gold in the way of wisdom and understanding. To be able to read words like this and know these words came from heaven. These words came from the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another, who is weak, eateth herbs. He's a vegetarian. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not. And giveth God thanks, whether eating or not. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Christian liberty, right there in a few verses. Taught in other places as well, but this is part of our worldview as Christians in this church. The Bible allows us considerable individual freedom and liberty, and we protect it. We have individual freedom on things God did not specify. They are called in theological terms, things indifferent. In the matter of things indifferent, God doesn't care. That's why he hasn't addressed it in the Bible. And we defend every man to have your own position on these things that God doesn't really care about. What God didn't address will let you do whatever you want as long as it doesn't lead you into sin, it doesn't cause any other brother to stumble, and it's not a disgrace or shame on the gospel. 
And this has all been taught in great detail. Do you remember the number of sermons I took and the number of pages on a subject matter called Christian liberty? It's been done before. Right now, it's just important for us to remember that is an axiom. If I leave that axiom out, I'm going to be hyper-judgmental about others. I need that to keep me sane. I see church members in this church doing things they ought to be excluded for. They don't breastfeed their babies. She got an epidural. They sent their kids to a Christian school. That mother works outside the home. Oh, you, I've got a little list here, but you know I've got a big list and an outline called Christian Liberty. How in the world can a bunch of hotheads like this church live together in peace and unity? Axiom number 35. Without axiom number 35, we will bite and devour one another because we all have pretty strong opinions. My dear father, a gentleman and a gentle gentleman has asked me, why are there so many hotheads in this church? He wasn't talking about you, of course. And I've explained to him, it takes, it takes an extreme person to think outside the box and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord has to make us extreme in certain ways to get outside the box of tradition and ritual and habit in order to see the truth. But for us to live together in peace, we need number 35. And while I need to skate through it rather quickly, I hope that you know that it's been taught in the past and taught in great detail. Thus, when we view others, because we have number 35, we allow sizable differences without offense or bitterness, and we'll defend each other regarding the use of alcohol. If you're using it moderately, we don't care if you use it or you don't use it. Drunkenness is a sin. Not drinking is not a sin. Alternative medicine. Some of you are traditionalists. Some of you are, follow alternative medicine. The kind of birth. Some of you like to do it underwater, upside down, standing on your head, in a birthing center, in a hospital, in traction, upside down, all kinds of ways. You know, we don't care how it gets here. Just get it here. That's the important thing. Birth control. Oh, birth control. What a huge issue that offends so many. Breastfeeding, bungee jumping, Catholic hospitals. Some of you actually work in Catholic hospitals. A hyper sin. The, the Catholic hospital medical system in, our, in Greenville is the number one employer in our church by far. Mercy. It's not what I'm saying to that point. It's Bon Secours Mercy or something like that. They keep changing the name. Circumcision, schooling of children, cosmetic surgery. Oh, I don't believe in cosmetic surgery. Come up here and show me your earlobes. Come up here and show me your teeth. Did you ever have braces? That's cosmetic surgery. What do you think it is? Well, that's because I did it, and it's okay. But she, but she got a different kind of cosmetic surgery, and I don't like that. There's no difference. We're going to defend both of you. Both of you are messing around with what God made. You say, well, that's not a nice way to describe. You're supposed to defend me. We're going to get along on all these things. Firearms. Health foods, motorcycles, music, 
Be careful. Let everything be done to the glory of God. Pants on females, wives with jobs, and the list is long. And the list causes division in churches, and it causes bitterness in people's hearts and grudges. Because when they see someone else in the church doing something that the Bible doesn't address or the Bible doesn't give its parameters on and there's allowed some personal liberty, they get offended and they have grudges and they have bitterness. And I've watched it eat people alive because they can't handle those little differences. They don't care about doctrine. They just care about their little list of differences. And we can't do that. So we've got axiom number 35. We reject man-made rules outside of the Bible. But we do not use liberty to justify sin. Men cannot judge us but the Bible. We will let no man, your pastor, a, a group of elders, a group of trustees, a group of men or all men, judge anyone in this church outside the Bible. It's got to be the Bible. If God didn't address it in the Bible, it's none of your business. In Baptist tradition, this is part of what is called soul liberty. That every man has soul liberty to choose before God by his conscience and the word of God on how he's going to follow the Lord. No tyranny of one man, no tyranny of elders, no tyranny of many men. This goes so far, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and individual Christian growth varies. So we, that is I, your pastor, allow minor variances for the peaceful and the humble. Do you remember? If God in his dealings with you has not shown you all the truth, and he's bringing you along slowly, or you just found us in the last couple of years, and so you haven't heard everything that we believe, we're going to vary in here on certain things, certain minor things. You wouldn't have joined our church for a, if there was a major difference. You may look at a certain verse and see it in a different way than I see it. We allow that because of the Holy Spirit's individual dealing with men and their unique progress in conversion. As long as two conditions are met. Number one, there is no sowing of discord among the brethren because that's condemned in the Bible. Number two, you're able to be humble and listen to everything else the pastor has to preach with both ears open and a submissive and a humble mind like the noble Bereans. Amen. Those are the two rules. They're taught before you join the church. They're taught after you join the church. No dictator or tyrant here. I'm a tyrant for the Word of God. I'm going to keep preaching it. I don't really care what you believe right. because I know you don't have the truth if you're differing from what I preach. Yes, absolutely. Right. You weekend warrior who spend 15 minutes in the Bible reading your chapter of the day are highly unlikely to arrive at a tsunami of evidence that hasn't already been dealt with. But that isn't the point right here. The point is, there is Christian liberty, and we allow it. And I allow it. And I I just gave it to you. And as long as those two conditions are being met, I can be happy with most any Cornelius or eunuch sitting in this congregation. I'm just going to keep teaching for you to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to keep praying for it, and I'm going to keep teaching the same thing. The church church has liberty. You as a church, we as a church have liberty, and your pastor has liberty, which destroys, this is a different kind of liberty, which destroys liturgical churches and a form of worship. 
See, God, do you know how little is in the Bible? I've said all these things before. Do you know how little is in the Bible about what a church service should look like? It just tells us a little bit about content, and it tells us what it shouldn't look like. There better not be a bunch of babbling and gibberish like charismatics. It tells us. So it saves us from a liturgical church. Listen, we can turn our worship service around. We can have the preaching first, then the singing. Would God be offended? I know your ancestors would be, but would God be offended? The Lord allows us that. We don't care what other churches do. They should allow us our liberty. We allow them their liberty. All within the confines of the Word of God. Freedom to do as we choose is limited by its effect on us, its effect on others, and its effect on the gospel. I've said it. Number 36. Number 36. Lord, we need to move faster than that, but I did want to give you Job 28. Oh, brethren, Job 28. Do you want... Why don't they use this in school? Do you know what you had to read in literature? What did the author mean by this? That they're insane. (laughs) Is what you had to answer in most literature classes. The stuff that you read was absolute garbage. How about Job 28? And let them figure out those sentences. It is a great exercise of metaphorical, symbolic language. And it leads us to the grand conclusion about the fear of the Lord. Number 36, God's providence is real. God's providence is real. Wait till the second service. And we get to tell you just a little tiny bit about God is still alive in Spartanburg County. Sparkle City is another name for the city that doesn't sparkle. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 for number 36. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Oh, I love the providence of God. I want you to love it. Let's submit to it and let's ask for more of it. Because when He makes a providential decision to bless you, you will be blessed. When He makes a providential decision not to bless you, you will not be blessed no matter what you do. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Number 36, God's providence is real. Now we had an axiom, number 30, which was history is God's work. But that's, when we were there, we were stressing world history in the big, the big scheme of things. These, these are the smaller scheme of things when it comes down and affects us individually. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 14, in the day of prosperity, that's your prosperity, that's your family, in the day of prosperity be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God also hath set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. God wants you to know he's in control. What you think is your best effort, and you ought to be singled out of your company and promoted to a new level because of something you've done may not even be noticed. And then you do something that you think is just That was my job to do. Then you get promoted for it. Because it's God's choice in all these things. A pastor understands that so well because there are times when he gets in the pulpit, he's got the greatest sermon ever prepared. 
the greatest sermon ever prepared. And he looks out, ho-hum. Then the Lord turns his apple cart upside down and he gets in the pulpit. I'm not even prepared. I'm just going to have to let her go. Everybody's blessed. What in the world happened? In the day of adversity, consider, don't count on your sermon the way you count on it, Johnny. I'm talking to myself. Let me do my work. It's just, it's just wonderful. And we want, to, we want to learn this. I love the last part of verse 14. The first part has its value, but I love the last part. God also hath set the one, prosperity, over against the other, adversity, to the end, here's the purpose, that man should find nothing after him. We will never be able to say, I control my destiny. I control the world. I control my life. No, you don't, don't, don't. God does. Lord, help us learn this. There are no coincidences. There are consequences for actions, and there is His providence that may go against the consequences of your actions. Has He ever been merciful to you? That means you deserved adversity and got prosperity. Has He ever chastened you? That means you deserved, if you ever do deserve it, prosperity, but you got adversity. He's in charge of both. We, all, we always remember this. When something happens, oh Lord, I'm considering, because it's adverse, I'm joyful, because it's prosperous, but I know you're behind it. What do you want me to learn? You give and you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and we worship Him. Look at 9-11, Ecclesiastes 9-11. If we didn't spend at least a minute or two in the book of Ecclesiastes, when we're preaching about worldview, we're wrong. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is about the right worldview. And thus the verses that you were given in the preparatory email yesterday. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11, I returned. He got back to his study of the purpose of man. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. Really? Nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Spartanburg County, as you'll hear in the second service, in one week, crushed Greenville County for a month. I'll tell you what, what we mean by that in the second service. I hope that you'll come back. That's not a liberty. I hope that you'll come back. Your life is impacted by his countless choices for you in very broad and very deep ways. Do you know the number of choices God has made for you in your life? They're enormous in quantity. They're deep in quality. The effect they have on us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so number 36 is God's providence is real in our lives. Advancement or promotion, according to Psalm 75, is by, his, is by Him. Psalm 75 and verse 6. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. That's where it is. So if you want to get ahead, what's the first rule? Obey God. First rule of Bible economics, obey God. Them that honor me, I will honor. He has arranged all the dots of your life, good and bad. 
and they always and only point in one direction, Him. They always point to Him. Men should praise His providence and beg for more of it. Look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18. I love watching God's providence in your lives. These, if, we will, if we will learn these things, if you'll review them, and the table that will be finished in the end, and, and put them in, and exercise yourself with them. Every event that pops up in your life, whether it's in the news or, or some small event at work, learn how to apply these, and you'll just think them instinctively. And it just brings perfect peace, because our mind is stayed on Him and the right worldview. We see everything, why it happens, how it happens, for the purpose it happens, and we see blessing in it, even if it's adverse because he's chastening us, like Job took the adversity in his life. Psalm 18, verse 19, David said, He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. David was able to see that. We want that kind of a blessing when the Lord does not need to chasten us like David had. If you come all the way over to Psalm 107, which this church has enjoyed, Psalm 107 and verse 8, which is repeated a number of times in this psalm, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men! Exclamation point. And there are sections of this psalm that describe different ways that He treats us, different things He does for us, and we should praise the Lord for it. Right. We've got to move. Number 37. Number 37. Love is the greatest. You've heard those four words before. Thank you, blessed God, for showing us number 37. Love is the greatest. It isn't faith. It isn't hope. It's love. It's love. Love of God and love of others. Especially love of others at this point. Number 37, love is the greatest. The greatest grace. The greatest influence. The greatest motive. The greatest goal for men, for us is to love God and love others. Tremendous change in our lives to take us from selfish to selfless and serving. To take us from malice and envy to rejoicing thrills at benefits received by others. It's a tremendous thing in the Bible. Those who hear our emphasis on doctrine, those who hear us wanting to dot our I's and cross our T's, think that we don't believe in love. They are totally wrong. They've never given us a hearing. They don't know anything. We love love. We exalt love. We put it in its proper place and it's very high. It's very high. Who cares if we have perfect doctrine and not love? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 annihilates that idea. That's ridiculous. That's a waste of doctrine if you don't have love. It doesn't matter how much wisdom, how much understanding, how much gift of prophecy. If we spoke in the tongues of men and of angels, if we give our bodies to be burned, if we give every cent away to the poor, if we do all those things and we don't have real charity, and real charity is the love described in the next four verses in one sentence, then it's, it's nothing. It's meaningless. It's the sound of a clanging cymbal. It's nothing. Love is the greatest. Love of God is passionate desire to please Him, know Him, serve Him, enjoy Him, and exalt Him. Love of others is selfless desire and help for them to grow in favor with God and men. We desire and we do things 
to help them grow in favor with God and men. The Bible tells us, by nature we're hateful and hating one another. And so God changes us to love. Titus 3.3. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 that I just referred to because we do want to read that one sentence that is the greatest definition of love toward others that's ever been compiled into one place. It's got 15 phrases in it, 15 angles on loving others in one sentence. It would make a marriage perfect. It makes a church perfect. If we would practice this one sentence, we'll be greatly blessed. It's part of our worldview. I know you've heard it before, but just let it roll in your mind. And it's 15 aspects of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Amen and amen. amen. One sentence, 15 phrases describing the way, the perfect way to relate to others. If a person were to practice those 15 things toward another person, that is true love. That is real love. What the world calls love is lust. There isn't any lust in here because it is not seeking her own. It's seeking the benefit of the other. It's totally transcendent and totally superior to what the world calls love. Thank you, blessed God, for that. And it's in the first three verses. You know, if you had the tongue, if you spoke in tongues of angels, if there was such a thing, in verse 1, and you didn't have the love of verses 4 through 7, it's just an irritating noise. Verse 2, you understand all mysteries. Now, that's, that's high doctrine. That's as high as it gets because you understand all mysteries and all knowledge and you have the gift of prophecy. But, and you have all faith so that you could remove mountains. Now that's quite a combination. There's a real man. He's got faith to move mountains and he's got all the knowledge and understanding of the mysteries of God. It's utterly worthless right. without the love of verses 4 through 7. Because the devil is already way ahead of you in understanding mysteries and knowledge. He knows what's coming, but he doesn't have any love. This is what separates us. This is the big change. Right. To go intellectually from being an evolutionist to being a Christian, the devil's already a, a Christian in that sense of the word, a creationist. Let me change the word from Christian to creationist. To go from being an evolutionist to being a creationist, the devil's already a creationist. So what have you accomplished? It doesn't, it doesn't show any real work of grace. Because all you're doing is reaching up to a devil. But now, what if God changes you from being selfish to being selfless and a servant? Wow, that's a big change. Then you can show your faith by your works, by serving others. And so love is the greatest. And so when we look at relationships... 
and we look at where do I fit into this picture? What should I be doing? What is my role in the church? It's not what do I get from the church? It's what can I give to the church? What can I do for the church? Because love is the greatest. And so we ask before anyone joins our church, do you understand that the church is where you go and love, not where you go to be loved? Because we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great example of love. Worldly love is lust, which is selfish, it's cruel, and it's generally disappointed. Christians have love's best definition, just read it to you, the best emphasis, the best example, the Lord Jesus Christ, the best instruction, the best motive, and the best power to practice love. We have the power because it's the Holy Spirit power. The fruit of the Spirit is, is love. It's the best motive because the highest motive, the highest evidence of eternal life is brotherly kindness and charity. It's love. It's not doctrine. Doctrine doesn't prove a work of grace. Doctrine does not prove that you're saved. Doctrine does not show any evidence that your name is in the book of life. Love does. Love. Love is the greatest. And so we keep that in our minds. I have taught you love is the greatest in an extensive outline on more than one occasion, and I have taught you the definition of love going through those 15 phrases right there in front of you in great detail. Before I... Yeah, let's go on. Number 38. Number 38. True charity is strict. Number 38. True charity is strict. Now, we just mentioned charity, and I just read a passage to you about charity. But true charity is strict. True charity is limited. True charity is strict. It's what you can use for your axiom, but it's limited. Let's turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Due to modern news media, Everyone sees many needs. You know, when television came out, some of these social do-gooders that are on television, some of these televangelists that have chosen as their market niche, social works throughout the world can just shove it in your face. Day after day, event after event, program after program, just shove some starving Sudanese baby in your face. And they got very good at it. And Christian, I've been asked this since I was a teenager because we would see the brochures, we'd see it on television. There'd be so many appeals made for money, appeal after appeal made for money, to send help to people who've always been thirsty, to people who've never had food because you can't feed a nation on sand. Because the, the world has always had these needy issues and needy people in the earth for the whole history of the earth. Jesus said it this way, ye have the poor with you always, but you don't always have me with you. And when he used the poor in that context, he was using legitimate poor. That means the poor of Israel, and that means the poor that had acts of God in their lives. Not because they were lazy, not because they were superstitious, not because they were foolish or wasteful, but he said, you'll always have the poor. Just remember the words of our Lord. You know, number, number 38 is going to make us different again because it's going to 
affect our worldview on how we view the world and its crying needs for help. You say you sound sarcastic. Thank you. Acts chapter 11. This is Paul's home church, Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus. Acts 11.28 now. And signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the whole world, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, who were never able to complete their mission before they died. Let's go back to the middle of verse 29. They determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Now the whole world is starving. The whole earth is starving. But they determined to send two brethren with a sack of cash 300 miles south to a very limited audience. They were to bypass everyone else in between. They were to bypass the Phoenicians. They were to bypass the Samaritans. They were to go to Jerusalem and Judea and find the brethren there and take care of them, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It stayed in the church. It's, do you know what a deliverance this is? Number 38. These social do-gooders that live in their fancy homes and fly their Learjets and want the last buck out of your pocket to take care of someone in Africa, someone in India, and drill a well for them are not following the Bible. And see, this has been taught in great detail, so we just make mention of it as part of our framework for how we view the world. Look at Romans chapter 15. There's many references, but I'm just going to give you a couple. I just want you to think. Think. When, how many times and for how long did Jesus leave the confines of Israel to go deliver food or money to the poor in Egypt? That's out. Never. Arabia. Never. Syria. Never. Babylon, never. Hittites, never. When did the apostles ever do it? They didn't do it. You're reading right now the apostolic tradition and the apostolic order. Romans 15 and verse 26, verse 25. Let's get the context, a little tiny bit of it. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. Do you remember from the maps that Macedonia and Achaia are the two halves of Greece, north and south. Achaia is south, Macedonia is north. It hath pleased them of Greece to make a certain contribution. That means it's very definite. It had very specific terms. For the poor saints 
which are at Jerusalem. Do you know how far Greece is from Jerusalem? Hundreds and hundreds of miles. But they took a very specific, a certain contribution for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And he, were there poor people in Greece? Yeah, that goat herding nation, of course, there were a lot of poor. There's nothing wrong with goat herding. That's a Christian liberty. I'll use a lawnmower. And I'll drink almond milk <laughs> on my dead body. You say, well, you may be dead because you don't drink almond milk. Well, okay. Well, that's part of our liberty. Let's just keep our liberty right up there. We all have so many different ideas on things. Lord, help us right here. Look at that charity and what they didn't do and what they did do. Lord, help us to see that. Christians grieve when they see babies with flies on their eyeballs and the pictures that they... Listen, that is what I meant by fake news, sensationalized stuff, distorted information to distract you and to punish you and to make you feel guilty and to make them look like they are great Christians because of their social do-gooding, though their doctrine is heretical in a hundred different ways. Bible Christianity is not Bolshevik communism. Bible Christianity is not Bolshevik communism to each according to his need. We stick together in the family of God. We're blood brothers and blood sisters, bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what Jesus Christ would say? Let the dead bury the dead. He did not put that burden on us. That is a tremendous deliverance by the grace of God. For axiom number 38... It is not that we don't care about the poor. We don't care about poor reprobates. Unless God puts one of them right in our path in the ordinary course of business like he did the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was on a business trip. And the wounded Jew was in front of him. He dealt with it. He wasn't taking in all these emails. I hope you don't subscribe to some of this stuff that goes on in the world so that every day you have to look at pictures because that never happened in the history of the world before. But now it's available in our nation, and it distracts men. I sound cold, cruel, and heartless. Oh, no, we're not. This is a giving church, a caring church, a charitable church, and we help and support those in true need who have a true emergency, and we do it God's way. And we have detailed what God's way is in the Bible. Other worldviews do not know how to deal with this issue. They are wrong on it. And so their worldview gets distorted and twisted off course by the things that go on in the world. The church in both Testaments never went looking for hardship cases in the world. Not ever. I don't have time. The words, by thee. If one of thy brethren, by thee, be poor, do not charge him usury. I mean, the Lord is very specific. Everyone else, charge them usury. Be a creditor to the nations. Make them pay when they borrow from you. Charity in the Bible provides food, clothing, shelter, and emergency medical care, and no more. The Bible backs that up over and over with food, clothing, and shelter. And the Good Samaritan tells us 
emergency medical care of a person stuck right in your path. That I did not say medical test. No one has a right to a medical test. If you can't afford it, you don't deserve it. You have no idea the can of worms I just shared with you that I have to deal with. I'm just telling you. A medical test. Do you know that our medical profession will never, ever stop testing you? If you go in and let them know that you will, you, you will cough up Medicare or your insurance company for testing, that's like going to an auto mechanic every day saying, would you check it out again? They will for their $75. I'm not talking about that. There's a real emergency. The Bible tells food, clothing, shelter. Toys for Tots. <laughs> How many dollars do you think I've given to Toys for Tots in my life? I'm 62 now. Toys for Tots. Unbelievable. Charity gives in order to family, church brethren, other believers of the same faith, strangers God puts in our path. Charity does not give to the lazy, does not give to the foolish, does not give to the wasteful. It requires wise diligence. This is hard. This is hard, but this is the way we've practiced it, and this is the way the Lord has shown it to us for decades now. The Bible says, A slothful man shall beg in the time of harvest and have nothing. The Bible says, He that does not work shall not eat. The Bible says that he that is a great waster is brother to the slothful. So we've made a family connection. See, everything I just said has been taught before, and it's straight out of the Bible. We are not of this world. Let the dead bury the dead. We will help our blood brothers throughout the world when we hear about them in need. You know, the world may help us once in a while with some of the privileges of living as an American citizen by their general laws, but they would not if we were ever isolated and they could make a choice. Oh, no, they wouldn't. They would not let us participate in the benefits that they offer if they knew who we were and could isolate us from the general population. So we get to do things like become Greenville tech experts in their system, taking their money for the education of our children because they can't isolate us yet, but as soon as they can isolate us, they will take away those goodies. So while we have them, nursing fathers and nursing mothers. I'd say more, but I want you to keep that calendar noted with my name. Number 39. Number 39, politics by the Bible. Politics by the Bible. While I'm still thinking about number 38, you know, the men have all been warned at men's meetings over the years, you better work hard, you better save, you better rule your spending, you better rule your debt, you better have a transferable skill, because we are not going to help you if you get in trouble and you haven't been doing those things, because you've been taught those things and those things are your duty. 
we are not going to be another welfare state and help those that don't do those things. And it's been taught repeatedly. If you don't insure, that's your fault. Sorry. Deal with it. Because insurance is too easy in America. So cheap. I pay the highest rates of insurance of anybody in here. By far. I have no group plan of any kind, but it's still cheap. You're never going to have to foot put food into my widow's mouth because I didn't take care of my affairs. And that's, that should be true of all of us. The Bible, the Lord doesn't have mercy for people that don't take care of themselves. It's our job. It's our duty. It's, the, it's what makes the world go round and what makes it a wonderful place when everybody does their part. And then we can accumulate and we're not supporting sloth, waste, intemperance, and so forth. Okay, number 39, politics by the Bible. By politics. We intend civil authority of rulers. God puts over nations and principalities. And the state of South Carolina is a principality, and so is Greenville County, and so is the city of Greenville, and so forth. Scripture teaches us that God ordained and rules the offices, the specific offices, the men in them, and the spirits of the men at any point in time. He is totally in control of all those things. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Do not question, do not balk at what I just said. God is in total charge of the offices of civil authority, the men in the offices of civil authority, and their spirit at any point in time, all taught in the Bible. Do you know how peaceful that is to have that part of our worldview? Yes, Lord. We believe that. So the previous president we had, we believed it about him as much as about the present president that we have. We believe it about both of them. He called them gods. That is, our God called civil rulers gods, with a small g, because they had the power of life and death, and they best represented him on earth because of their power. And that's found in the Bible in a number of places. Jesus appealed to it in John chapter 10, that the words are exactly correct when it says he called them gods. And Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken about that particular verse. We should submit, reverence, pay, pray, and give thanks for our rulers. Right. A, a totally different outlook on civil authority than many of us were brought up with or trained with or became habitual in our disrespect, our mocking, our joking, our questioning, our criticizing of government, speaking evil of dignities, when the Bible is so clearly against that. Because we're, it's above our pay grade. We're not, we don't have access to their privy information. The king's heart is way deeper than we are. And so we leave it right where the Bible wants us to leave it. And we don't speak evil of them and we thank God for them. And remember when Paul said, give thanks for your rulers, he's talking about the Roman Caesar. Right. Let alone our president. It should be so easy. Both presidents that I just referred to. Strong language is used in the Bible for those that resist God's ordinance of authority in civil rulers. 
He doesn't even want us cursing them in our hearts or cursing them in our bedrooms. We love the Bill of Rights and its declaration of religious freedom for all religions. We hardly care what pagans legislate about themselves only when it requires our sins. To a great degree, I don't care what laws America passes. I ask God, we pray, we pray here, I pray at home for God to bless our nation and to keep it conservative and to keep it relatively close to the Bible standard. But if they pass things like approving abortion, it doesn't bother me because they're not requiring me to abort. If they want to abort, oh well. You know, God have mercy upon the wicked nation that would allow such a thing. But if they want to abort their own, that's between them and God. I can't affect it. I can't influence it. I don't really care about it. People always want to know, where do we get to draw the line where we can fight? Why, does, why do people have that question? That amazes me. I would think that should be the last question you want to ask. Why not submit? Why, do you want to, why, why is rebellion? Rebellion on the tip of our minds, and the tip of our tongues. Rebellion. Right. Rebellion. Rebellion. I want to know when I can rebel. I want to know when I can tell them they're wrong. I want to know when I can do what, whatever I want to do. Let's submit. When they legitimatize sodomy, so? The Bible says it's going to happen. They're not requiring me to be one. They're not requiring my wife to be one. So we're going to have one of those old-fashioned, antiquated, opposite-sex marriages. And it doesn't bother me. I just see God's Word being fulfilled. You know it bothers me, but it's only a small portion. It no longer messes my life up. That's between them and the Lord. And so if they want to do that, that's between them and God. I know what I'm going to do between me and God. But when they cross the line to start influencing me that I can't keep the Bible, then they're going to meet a different Jonathan Crosby. But until then, look at the Apostle Paul. You cannot read one sentence about the customs and the laws of the Roman Empire in the entire New Testament and all the stuff they were legitimatizing, legislating, and practicing in that wicked empire. Not one sentence. You know why? Because it didn't matter to Paul and it doesn't matter to me. All he wanted to do was press the kingdom of God and live a holy example in front of them and he thanked God for Caesar and he prayed for Caesar. Number 40. Oh, before I leave number 39, I'm sorry. We will not fight religious persecution, but we will resist thieves with deadly force. Do you know the difference? We're not going to fight religious persecution. We're not going to take up guns to defend ourselves when it comes to suffering for the cause of Christ. We vote. We don't opt out. God's given us the means. He expects us to use means. We vote wisely. We never vote the Constitution Party because that's a vote for the Democrats every time. So we participate, and it's all been taught before, and it's all on our website, all detailed, point by point, and many more points in the Christian and politics. Number 40, death according to Bible. Death according to Bible. We believe and understand death as the Bible describes it. Death according to Bible. The Bible doesn't put us to death. 
But we look at death, we view death as part of our worldview, the way the Bible views death. Death, according to Bible. Death is a consequence of sin. We know it. We know where death came from. We know what causes death. It's not poor health. It's not poor nutrition. It's not poor exercise. It's not the lack of medical care. Death is a consequence of sin. That is huge. I hope everyone that is in a health field understands that. Death is the consequence of sin. Sin causes death. Those other things that I just lifted, listed do not cause death. You say, well, if a person just drank Coke and ate chips, they would die. Yes, and if they drank your almond milk with barley green, they would die. Probably sooner. Oh, that's my liberty. That's my liberty. And I'm not, I'm, the only, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to entertain you that way. I want you to understand all these issues that come. When we have the right worldview, and there's all these axioms around holding us in, there are parameters. We can just see things and know things. And to understand death, we know where it came from. They don't. The medical profession doesn't have a clue. They don't have the slightest clue where death came from. They don't have the slightest clue about the cure for death. We have both. We know the cause. We know the cure. Thank you, blessed God, for showing us so much. No effort or idea of man can slow or stop this great enemy by the just judgment of God upon our race. Death is coming. And death is going to come in 73 years from your birth. And it hasn't changed in 3,000 years. Life expectancy has not changed in 3,000 years. Man is not an animal. These are points that we should think about in our worldview. Man is not an animal. He is very different. His spirit returns to God. The spirits of beasts go right back into the earth where they came from. There's nothing to them. Ours goes back to our Creator. Solomon taught that in the book of Ecclesiastes in two places. We reject soul sleep. When we die, our soul does not go into sleep. It doesn't go out of existence. It does not become passive. It's still active, and it's in the presence of God by our spirit. We reject that thing called soul sleep of the Seventh-day Adventists and others, for only the body sleeps. When we find that somebody is sleeping in the grave, it's only their body that is sleeping in the grave. Their spirit is very much alive. Their spirit is either in heaven with God or in hell with the devils, who will be the, the devils that will be there. Because that is where they are remanded when they die. At death, and this was taught to you just recently in the last six months, God passes an immediate judgment to remand spirits to their eternal destiny. And they are called back before his tribunal and before his judgment bar with their bodies to receive judgment in their bodies and to be cast into the lake of fire. But before that, when a, when a wicked man dies, he's immediately before the Lord and he's remanded to hell. When a righteous man dies, he's immediately before the Lord and remanded to heaven. Then we come forth, the Bible teaches this. The, the, the rich man died and woke up in hell. Lazarus was carried to paradise, the third heaven, where God is. We understand these things about death. Each spirit will return with their bodies for final 
and official sentencing on Judgment Day. Jesus defeated death, so Christians may mock it as being powerless. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of our worldview. The fear of death distorts other worldviews. It drives other worldviews because they're afraid of dying. But when we are walking with the Lord, living by His Word, full of the Holy Ghost, that means we have un unbounded faith. We are abounding in faith and abounding in hope because we have hope of eternal life. And we can pass through that curtain for our bodies and enter into the presence of the Lord. Jesus died for the body, so we reject pagan cremation and practice Christian burial. It dry, our worldview right. determines why, what we do at funerals. That's perfect for the Lord's Supper. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The greatest fear. And listen, it's, it's, it's rushing toward us. Did you know that there's a couple sitting down here in the second row that have been married six months now? That's impossible. I was at their wedding last month. It can't be six months. I wrote and told the groom, I deny it. I don't care what he thinks about it. It hasn't, has it been six months? You know what that means for every single one of us? We are six months older and death is six months closer. But if we get our worldview right that God is and God has saved us unconditionally and Jehovah is the only God, I am that I am, I am that I am is a name that doesn't sound like he's very afraid of death. Right. I am that I am. And he sent his son to be our savior so that we have complete victory over sin, death, hell, and judgment. We can look forward to his coming or are departing. May the Lord bless us to hold our worldview and to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to celebrate His death for us so that death is abolished as any penal punishment for believers. In Jesus' name, we thank Thee, Lord. Amen. Amen.